You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. This episode of the podcast was recorded at the North Vancouver City Library, which is located on the traditional territory of the Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, Musqueam, and Stolo Nations. Last episode, we heard from three organizations on whether or not to rebrand as a more encompassing trail association. All three of my guests were paid executive directors, and it spoke to the capacity that a staffed organization can achieve. For this episode, I wanted to back up a step and tackle the topic of paid staff. It's been a discussion I've wanted to have for a while. We're going to dive headfirst into the minutiae that is this topic, and I wanted to include as much of the conversation in this episode. So if you don't have the time to listen all the way through, then don't be afraid to hit pause and finish listening later on. We'll wait for you. Now, as always, I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 64 of Frontlines. I'm joined by four guests today. The first is Sarah Gress, who joined us last episode. She's the executive director with the Wood River Trails Coalition. Hi, Sarah. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Uh, Second, my guest is Ernest Sagar, who also joined us last episode and is the executive director for the Vale Valley Mountain Trails Alliance. Hi, Ernest. Hi, Brent. Thanks for having me back. And third, we have Susie Murphy. She's a longtime supporter and friend of the podcast and is the executive director for the San Diego Mountain Bike Association. Hi, Susie. Super excited to be here. And finally, we have Corey Sutella. He's the current president for the Medicine Wheel Trails Advocates in Colorado Springs. And that organization is currently looking into hiring their first paid employee. Hi, Corey. Hi there. Well, everybody, I just want to start by, by saying thank you for joining me today. I know you're all very busy, and, uh, and so I do appreciate your time. Uh, what I'd like to, to start with is a, a question aimed at, at Sarah, Ernest, and, and Susie as, as staff members of your organization. Were any of you the first paid employees for your respective organizations? No, I was not. I think I'm the fourth, actually. Fourth in like 10 years, something like that, I think. Interesting. Yep. And when did uh, when did the first staff come in for the Wood River Trails Coalition? Well, we started as an official nonprofit in 2011, and that was Greg Martin who pushed that through. He was the executive director at the time. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure if he was paid. I think that he was, uh, but not positive. But then the two others after him, Brett Stevenson and Adrian Montgomery, were definitely paid. So I know there's been at least three of the four um, who have been paid. Not sure about Greg. Gotcha. Gotcha. And Susie, you were the first paid staff for the San Diego Mountain Bike Association? Yes, I was. And STIMBA was founded, that's what we call it for short, STIMBA, was uh, founded in 1994. So it had been all volunteer led and driven up until the point I was hired in uh, late 2015. And you've recently added to your staff? We have. So late last year, we hired Ben Stone as our trails coordinator. And he's now full-time. Gotcha. And Ernest, were you the first employee of your of your trail organization, the Vale Valley Mountain Trails Alliance? I am the first full-time employee and executive director of our organization. Three years ago, we 
started an Adopt-A-Trail program, and we have hired an Adopt-A-Trail coordinator. This would be the fourth year, I guess, going into it, that is a contractor, part-time employee. She has another job, so I'm the first full-time employee. That touches on an interesting discussion right there. For you, Susie, did you start in a full-time position? I know you're in a full-time position right now, but was that how the role began? No, it started as half-time, 20 hours a week for the first year. And that was written into the the job description and the the plan was kind of um, the board wanted to see how it went at half-time capacity. And then if they were happy with it, then it would go to full-time, which is what happened. And I think that's definitely what a lot of organizations will start with, especially I mean, there's there's nervousness about about taking that leap. It's a big jump going from an all volunteer group to to having paid staff. Uh, Corey, for the the Medicine Wheel Trail advocates, is there a conversation right now about hiring a full time or, or part time employee? I know you're having a conversation right now about hiring somebody. Yeah, we've had a significant discussion about it. What we're looking at doing is aiming to hire a full-time director in January of next year. And we're talking about having a part-time contractor from as soon as we can get it moving forward from now until until the end of this year. And I think the, the discussions we had around full-time were sort of centered on the idea that half-time really isn't enough to do both the administration work that needs to be done for the organization, as well as the fundraising part of it. So I'm I'm interested to hear what the other uh, panelists would say about how it works, having a halftime staff member, and if that role is actually halftime of 80 hours a week sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah, is it it paid halftime and and work (laughs) full-time? At the Trails Coalition, I'm still technically only halftime, so 20 hours a week. Uh, mostly for the summer and some of the spring and fall. And the winter, I do full-time ski patrol. But I think with the rebrand and us doing memberships all in-house and everything that we've got going on now, I don't think that's realistic going forward. I think I will quickly become full-time and then I'm going to have to find somebody to help out with either events or volunteer coordination because I am an entire nonprofit and one person. And I think if we grow this to where we want it to become, it's not going to be reasonable for me to be the executive director, development director, and events and volunteer coordinator. So I think that I will need an intern or a part-time staffer next year, and we need to have these conversations before it becomes too late, you know, kind of get ahead of it. But that's kind of where we're at, is that we've been at 20 hours a week ED for years. And I think now that we're really growing, that's not realistic anymore. Susie, for you, what was that transition like from from 20 hours to 40 hours? Was it a case of like you you work 20 hours a week and it was obvious that that it needed to be 40 hours a week? Or was that a sell that you had to kind of give to the the board of directors or or prove that it was needed or that uh, like, you know, another – topic of conversation is, is just uh, you as a, as, as a paid employee have the ability to earn revenue for the organization as well. So you kind of cover your own costs. Uh, what was it like making that, that, that switch from half to full? I think it was pretty obvious to the board that this job was not suitable for a halftime designation. Mm. I'll just say. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess I volunteered a lot in the first year. Gotcha. For the organization, I was the number one volunteer and the only employee. So yeah, I think it was pretty obvious. It was pretty a no brainer. We had the funding and, and even in that first year of halftime, uh, revenue 
streams were diversifying and increasing. So uh, it wasn't a it wasn't a tough decision for the board to take me full time. So uh, something that uh, that I'm reminded of uh, it was it was mentioned by a past guest, Matt Andrews, who was the the former executive director of the the Minnesota Off Road Cyclists, uh, also known as, as Mork. And he said that people don't volunteer to do day-to-day administrative work. And and I think, you know, getting volunteers is always challenging and will forever be challenging. I think it's just one of those things that is just we're always looking for for more help and, and more volunteers out there. Uh, but there are certain certain uh, activities or, or roles or, or positions that are going to be easier to get volunteers to come out to do. And, and sometimes helping out for events, you can get volunteers sometimes trail building, those types of things. But when it comes to that that administrative work, that is something that most people don't volunteer for or don't want to volunteer for. And something else that, that Matt Andrews mentioned was when you do volunteer for, for a trail organization, you don't think that you're going to run a small business in your free time, but that is what you end up doing. And so this is where I kind of see this huge benefit of of bringing on staff is is that that type of day to day administrative work becomes uh, uh, gets put on to staff and and you're able to kind of focus the rest of your volunteers on on other activities. How involved are each of your boards with your day to day work? Is there is there a clear separation or or do you report to the board on a daily basis or do they report to you? What's the dynamic at your organization as as a, a staff member compared to or with the the board of directors? Ernest, if you wouldn't mind starting us off. So at the Vail Valley Mountain Trails Alliance, I am lucky to have been on the board for the past three plus years before I became the executive director uh, about a month and a half ago. So I, I know the board. I know how the board operates. I've been that volunteer on the board for the past three years, uh, putting in that time. And I knew taking on this role as executive director that the the board and the people on it generally will not change or won't change. And I know that it's a working board and I have good relationships with them already. And from a a day-to-day standpoint, it is taking on those administrative tasks and and being your own IT department and being your own HR department, (laughs) as well as trail advocacy and trail building and events and everything else you have going on. But each one of your board members, if your board is set up strategically, has some sort of expertise in fundraising or trail building or um, advocacy or marketing or design. And we kind of split up into what would be uh, almost like a committee where I'll reach out to a board member that has to do with our marketing and events. And I'll, I'll make sure they're in the loop on and getting their feedback and ideas on what we have coming up and what how we should plan this event or, or and, and bring in this partner or that one. So that's kind of how I we are structured currently as far as an executive director to board role. Um, and the funny story that I'll add to that is when I was looking, uh, the conversation began about beginning as the executive director, I, I went to my dad first and foremost, because he has worked for a board of a nonprofit basically for the past 30, 40 years. And his response was, is it a working board or is it a non-working board? If it's a working board, take the job. If it's a non-working board, I would not take the job. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's it's an interesting uh, distinction, and I think for the most part, when when we're dealing with trail associations, and correct me anybody if if this isn't the case for your your organization, but I feel like most of us are are dealing with working boards, if not all of us are dealing with working boards. Yes, I'd say we have a very hard working board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe not working board, but hard working They're boards. Hard, yeah, <laughs> they're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like to echo what Ernest just said. Same thing. We've all kind of got our different roles. It's actually pretty even back and forth. Like one board member takes care of all of our paperwork. So we're good at the IRS and things like that. Another one's really great for events and we'll show up and be like camp cook for, you know, 50 volunteers and others are great to have at events to speak and funneling donors my way and back and forth. And so I think we're really diverse and we all work pretty hard, but sometimes I forget that they're not doing this semi full time. And if they don't answer me within 10 minutes, I'm like, well, what could they possibly <laughs> be doing? Um, but mm-hmm. they're doing their other jobs and they have families and everything. Um, but as a, as a team, I think we're really active and engaged. And it's actually really fantastic to have that kind of support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and, uh, and I'll have to ask his permission first before I actually include this in, in the episode. But uh, but my trail association board president, uh, Cooper Quinn, he he told me that he likes to send emails at uh, at on Fridays, just in the evenings, just to remind people that uh, that this isn't his job, <laughs> that it's a volunteer <laughs> position. And, and he, I think it's a, a, an interesting tactic to just make sure that that you're reminding land managers that that this is a, for a lot of us, a volunteer uh, position. Corey, so you're in, in the position right now where, where your organization is all volunteer. And so what was the, the, the thing that kind of kickstarted this conversation of, of thinking about hiring someone? You know, I, th- I think it's been rumbling around for the last several years and we've in- increasingly had volunteers we- that haven't burnt out, but they're approaching that direction. We had a the completion of a 20-year project last year, literally a huge project that, that we've been working on for two decades. And that took a lot out of everyone. And we all kind of looked around and said, you know, we're doing great stuff. We're hitting way above our weight, really, for a volunteer organization. We've got to take that next step. We're seeing great marketing opportunities from this new trail project. There's a ton of people moving to our region, especially Colorado Springs is growing like crazy. And the constituency of mountain bikers is growing. So there's there's great opportunity. We've got a great marketing story. We've got really strong track record with our land managers. It's really, it's sort of been boiling up for a long time. And I, I wouldn't say that there's been one specific thing that that put us over the edge. I would say that we we contracted with a strategic planner this year to do a strategic plan. And in the back of our minds while we were doing that, we were thinking, okay, what? how are we going to set ourselves up for the structure that's going to allow us to make the step from all volunteer to having some some paid staff. And now you've been asking other Colorado organizations about where they were at when when they first hired staff and, and what questions have you been asking them? Yeah, I set up a little uh, survey just to help our board understand what where other organizations were when they were ready to make this leap. So we we asked, yeah, how long has your org had the paid role? What's the salary? Do you work as an employee or a contractor? How long has the role existed? Is it full-time or, or part-time? Uh, how many paid staff do you have, including the director? Other than mountain bike advocacy, are there other activities that are part of the mission and funding streams? What percent of your revenue comes from other parts of the mission that aren't related to mountain biking? 
How many members did you have when you started paying staff? How many members do you have now? Where do you get the bulk of your revenue from? Is it from memberships or from other sources? And what are those other sources? And when you first made the leap, how many months of operating expenses did you have in the bank when you made the step? Those are all uh, questions that I'd love to hear the answers to. <laughs> yeah, are you planning on sure. publishing that? Because I want to read that. Actually, yeah, I, I got some really great support, both from Ernest and also from uh, Mike Pritchard, who's a, an ED of, of the Roaring Fork Mountain Bike Association here in Colorado. And as we talked through it, it became evident that making some kind of a playbook for other organizations that want to make this change would be really valuable. And it's certainly the case that rising waters lifts all boats. It's really good for everybody if there are more organizations making this step and it becomes more of a normal thing and there's more resources to go around to support each other. So initially I was worried that um, some directors wouldn't want to share that information and it might be considered confidential, but it is my intention to scrub the names off and turn this into a playbook that we can share with other organizations and help make it easier for other groups to do the same thing. That's fantastic. Would you be open to to sharing that to a, a broader audience, even than just Colorado? Like, would you would you want to hear what organizations from the rest of the country or or even globally have to to say about those? Yeah, I think for our purposes of of trying to move forward, we've got the data that we need to make our leap, yeah. um, and. I'm definitely open to it. It would take some resources to turn it into a bigger project and it's really not the highest priority for us, but if I could do it without it taking a ton of time, I'm very open to that. I think I'm of the opinion and we all gain by sharing information like this. So what I'd like to do is kind of shift a little bit and discuss who each of you are as uh, as individuals. Now, uh, you know, I, I I assume that that you're all at least mildly into mountain biking in your free time, and and so as people who are who are mountain bikers but also have this job, how do you balance this this kind of work life balance? You know, while working or volunteering for your local trail association, you know, it, every time you're on a bike. Like, are you are you working a little bit? Uh, are you representing your organization? Do you find that you kind of travel to get outside of your community to go riding, or or can you balance that 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 work life objectives? I guess I can start. Yeah, go ahead, Sarah. So I came from the Forest Service Trail Crew here. I was on the trail crew for the last three years. So this will actually be the first summer that I've lived here that I can use the trails for fun. <laughs> So I feel like maybe I'm kind of different than a lot of people because now having this job, even as the ED, I can be out there and I'm still thinking, I'm like, oh, someone should clear that drain or, you know, this is, has a drainage problem, et cetera, et cetera. But for once, I'm finally not just packing a chainsaw around 40 hours a week. So that feels pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> but I think for me, at least going out on the trails as the ED of a local trails group, as opposed to a professional trail crew member, will feel pretty great. And it'll kind of feel like work, but not in the same sort of way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of like ski patrol is ruined skiing on <laughs> Valley for me. I just can't, I can't go ski on an off day and not think, man, someone needs to fix that sign. So it's kind of always been like that with the trails, but now that I'm not on the trail crew, I don't, I'm not the one who has to dig out the drain. So that's nice. <laughs> yeah. I haven't been ski patrolling for seven years and I still think about, oh, somebody needs to mark that hazard. That's not right. good right now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's it's tough to kind of turn those things off. How, how about everybody else? Do you, do you find that that kind of clicking off, it, it can be challenging? I find it very challenging. I would say if I, pretty much any ride that I do 
in San Diego County or even outside. I was up at Lake Arrowhead this last weekend up at Big Bear. I'm always, it's hard for me not to run into somebody who wants to talk about whatever is going on. So my, my close riding circle of buddies, they try to, we plan rides where uh, like weekdays when there may not be a lot of people out so I can just go ride. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, sometimes I try to go incognito so I can just kind of go on a ride and not talk about trail issues and, you know, <laughs> but yeah, it's tricky. And I, I mean, I just got back from a weekend Moab, you know, and through Durango and Sedona and still ran, I ran into people from San Diego, like on the trail, you know, yeah. and of course I was sporting my Stimba, Stimba jersey and stuff. And they're like, Hey, Stimba. I'm like, yeah. Up on Porcupine Rim, it's like, hey, <laughs> hey guys, what's up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it is. It's kind of hard to find a boundary sometimes, but it's awesome. Well, and that's a great point too. I mean, this is something that I certainly struggle with with work life separation. And uh, but at the end of the day, I love my job, yeah. <laughs> and so you know, it's hard for me to separate sometimes because it's I, I'm you know even on those days when I am off and you know something comes up, it just I find it really fun, right and. And definitely there, there needs to be some balance in there, but, um, you know, I'm not quite a believer in the, the fact if you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. Cause mm. I, I think that's a little bit of baloney. It's still work. <laughs> There's a reason why people are paying you to right. do it. It's because nobody wants to do it, but that doesn't mean that you, you can't still love and enjoy the work that you do. Yeah. It's definitely hard. Sometimes I'll find myself just riding up trails, whether it's in my backyard and taking pictures of what needs to be fixed, or if I'm riding somewhere out of town, uh, if I'm riding in steamboat and I like something they did, I'll stop on the trail and take a picture of how they did it. And my friends or whoever it is I'm riding with like uh, say, oh, he's stopping again to take another picture of the trail. And they don't really understand that part of it sometimes. But And then the other examples is just being out in your community. I was over at a friend's house for dinner last night who said that one of, oh, Ernest is the new executive director. Now now I can't go ride illegal trails anymore because I know him. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's those type of things that, you know, even though it, you have to try to turn it off sometimes, you're still that that position or, or looked at as that figurehead in the community for, for trails. Now, uh, Susie, I believe it was Kevin Loomis, your board president, who who mentioned this to me, but he spoke about how paid staff gets clubs kind of past this point uh, of inertia where once you have once you've kind of hired somebody, the organization just starts moving at this point and and things don't stop. And in some respects, things can't stop because you, you, you have people who are relying on your organization as a, as a source of income, uh, as a, as a career. And so there's this inertia that, that begins. Is it true that, and, and for Susie and, and Sarah and, and Ernest as well, you know, is it true that like to, to go backwards, like would it even be possible for your organization to go back to an all volunteer organization? I would have difficulty envisioning that uh, happening. Yeah. It's the inertia is a good word because as soon as I started, things just like, I mean, it was a lot of hard work and it was a lot of planning and we did strategic plan and, you know, got a real budget together from what it was before and had this vision, but things started to, we got more meetings and we got more things and we, we got more sponsors and the events got bigger and things, and that's still continuing to go on. You know, when I started, our membership was 
about 800 people due to various things. It took different a dip and, and then growth. And now we're up to over 1,350, which is the highest we've ever been. I would say when I came in, part of the momentum was, I feel like the, the board had a, had a thought that, oh, as soon as we hire an ED that has any grant writing ability, that most of our revenue will come from grants. But that wasn't my, I kind of always warned them against that thinking because when I came in, the revenue streams are really not diverse. And, and uh, I said, I don't think grants is really, grants are awesome as long as you're selective and careful. But I mean, the majority of our revenue now is memberships or individual donations, which individual donations and don- major donors and stuff like that hadn't really been cultivated until I started. And now it's, it's a major thing, but that's, I spend a lot of my time on it. So. Interesting. I think it's, it, it speaks to perhaps people being oblivious to how things work, but it, you know, there, there's this perception that donations and membership just happen, that they just come in, that whether, whether you've got an engaged organization or not, that that's just, that that's just something that's always going to be there. And, and that's not simply the case. What is it about your role that, that increases membership, that increases those donations? Like what does it really do for that revenue stream? Well, I think when people wrap their heads around that, the idea that the organization has a staff person, one or two or whatever, that it lends a lot of legitimacy for your current members and for new, new members, but it's, it's multi-pronged, right? I mean, I can be out going to social things and talking to people and talking at front of other groups or, or all of that. So that lends visibility. But I think we've also really upped our game as far as uh, social media marketing uh, and our content on those platforms and the website improvements and all that. But as you guys all know, that's like a never ending game because it's never going to be done. But we've really increased uh, our social media presence, trying to cultivate those people who end up liking us on Facebook and then trying to get them more engaged to, you know, sign up for our newsletter and then become members. And I think it's, it's working to some extent, which is great. But then the legitimacy that's lended by staff people allows you to talk to people who are potential major donors or just higher level members, VIP members, or possibly major donors. It gives them the comfort to know that we're stable and, and things are moving forward. And, if you cultivate those people and keep them kind of in the loop and have coffee with them and inform them of updates on complicated advocacy things, they really like that being on you know, kind of being on the inside and getting information. And um, so I find that if you can really gather that those group of people um, on your donor list, that it, it reaps the benefits that time is well, well worth the investment. Yeah, and I think having paid staff just leads that sort of um, consistency and legitimacy you're talking about, Susie. You know, like a big donor knows like, oh, I've got someone whose job it is to make sure what I just gave them money for happens. And I think having like, you know, consistent thank yous and consistent social media posts and, you know, like everything on the back end that takes a ton of time that no one thinks about happens consistently. I mean, I spent most of my morning fighting with MailChimp and Salesforce. Like who who's going to do that for free? Probably no one. And so I think that's what paid staff is really important for is all that stuff on the back end to provide that consistency for donors. Yeah, I, I agree. It's that legitimacy and even accountability is, is what I heard. 
a number of times right when I started uh, as the executive director. We had people coming out of the woodworks that we knew were supporters, but they were extremely excited that we took the jump to having a full-time paid ED. And they wanted to know what, how they could be involved more, what, how they could donate more money, how their business could support further uh, because they saw the value in it. And they knew that having that full-time paid staff person uh, is actually is going to be there on a day-to-day basis and try to enact all of the ideas and plans that have been out there as far as building trail, maintaining trail, whatever it may be. It's, it's always easy and always a lot of fun to sit around and talk about, oh, we should build a trail here, or that trail needs maintenance here, or we want to do this or that. And and those conversations are always great and exciting and and fun. And But you, in the end, uh, you need someone behind all of that conversation to actually execute. And I think that's what a lot of the people that we saw come forward right away when we announced that I was an ED felt that, that there was going to be execution and accountability. Is there any pushback from the community? Like, is there any questions from the community? Like, why why pay people to 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 do that? Is there any? Maybe people are concerned. Like, you know, when you go from an all volunteer organization, that kind of feels good, right? Like, it's like these are all volunteers; they're all doing good things. And and is there any uneasiness from members of the community about switching to having paid staff? I haven't heard a lot, but I've been told a couple times. You know, like, no offense, I know it's your job, but. I don't understand why someone would pay you to do that. And I think, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to keep doing it. Um, no offense, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's just funny. I just think that like kind of belies a lack of understanding of what happens on the the back end of these kind of organizations. You know, like getting volunteers out to like do some trail work and stuff is great, but that takes a lot of prep work. And then the fundraising to actually build a trail or like have a big trail project takes a lot of prep work and events take prep work. I just, I think there's been some organizations in the past that have tried to do it all volunteer and they just didn't, it just didn't stick. And I think, especially in this day and age where you have to engage in social media, you're dead in the water and other things like that. And you have to be able to engage on the ground with volunteers or it's not going to work. You just, I think anymore, if you really want to create kind of like this big trail beast, like I feel like I'm unleashing a dragon right now with the momentum we have, people are ready for it, but you just can't maintain that momentum and consistency that we've been talking about if you don't pay somebody. And whether that's part-time or full-time depends on the organization. But I just think, especially in a valley like this, where people either have time or money, but they don't have both, you just can't ask somebody to work for free as hard as you have to, to make it happen. Yeah, I think with us, when I was hired, there might have been some grumblings, not a whole lot, though, but people just same kind of idea, like, well, why would you have to pay somebody to do that? All they do is ride their bike every day. (laughs) People always, when I meet people, they're like, oh, you must get to ride your bike every day. And I'm like, "Mm, (laughs) no, I don't. (laughs) I think that's just, you know, if you run across any reasonable person who runs a small business or has worked in nonprofits before they understand all the work that's involved. So, and they, and they can see, see the results in our events getting bigger and better. And, and the more trail work days we have and the projects that we're moving forward on, as far as just the advocacy um, planning part of it, like um, they can see, I mean, any reasonable person can see the results of having somebody here to answer the emails and answer the phone every day. Right. And having this job actually makes less time for riding your bike. Absolutely. 
<laughs> Corey, you mentioned building capacity and and not trails, and and you know, there's a lot that needs to happen at an organization and. With any of these organizations, have any of you paid builders or or hired businesses to come in to, to build trails? Um, like, is are there some paid staff that are focused on on the actual trail maintenance or trail building out there as well? In fact, we have paid contractors to do a bunch of trail work for us. So we're a volunteer organization, but we've raised funds to pay contractors to build certain sp- specific trails. Really, we found that we can improve the volunteer experience by allowing volunteers to do corridor clearing and layout, come in with a machine and build some trail and then have volunteers do the hand finishing. It just allows us to get a lot more trail built and it's a more effective kind of model. But even as, as our organization is now, we we fairly often get people that come to the organization and say, Hey, you know what? I'm, I've been taking care of this jump park for a long time, or I've been working on this trail sort of off the grid for a real long time. I want to make it legit. And I'm wondering if, you know, if you can throw me a few bucks to, to be the one who takes care of this trail. And I've always had to say, you know, right now we're hundred percent volunteer. We, we just can't pay someone to build trail like that. We, we can raise money to, to pay professional contractors, but if we're going to pay a staff member, it really has to be someone who is building the organization that will allow us to leverage more volunteer work and fundraisers. Yeah, the Trails Coalition's actually only ever paid contractors. We don't have staff to do that sort of thing. Um, that might change. But last summer, we helped uh, fill a funding gap for the Forest Service to finish a trail that I actually wrote the grant for when I was with the Forest Service and then on the back end got the credit for the Trails Organization, you know, giving money. So that was nice, full circle. Um so we paid that contractor through the National Forest Foundation to work with the Forest Service to rebuild this trail. And then there's a new trail project that I can't really talk about, but I can say that we paid the same contractor to go scout out different routes last fall. So we're, we basically have been helping the Forest Service build trails by being able to pay a contractor for them is kind of how it's been working here and it, work, it works really well. So I don't see messing with that anytime soon. Yeah, we're in a similar project with uh, our, the Cleveland National Forest here, funding staff time for the NEPA studies to be completed on a couple of projects. That was kind of a model shown to us by some folks up from Tahoe, and um, so far, so good. Yeah, it just works out really well here and probably for you too, Susie, because the Forest Service has the infrastructure and the knowledge and everything to get it done. Sometimes they just don't have 15 grand. So that's where we can come in and kind of fill that gap for them. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And Ernest, what about your organization? We do not have a paid trail crew. And that's solely because we began an Adopt-A-Trail program three years ago. We have a paid Adopt-A-Trail coordinator, and then we have a paid Adopt-A-Ranger. Uh, the adopt trail program is really a partnership with our local forest service. And in 2016, we had 30 trails. This year, we're up to 53 trails where we have businesses, organizations, uh, or families, friends, groups, homeowners associations, whatever it, be, it may be, uh, adopt a trail. They have their specific trail. They work on it three times a summer. And our adopt a trail coordinator coordinates the scheduling, who's going out where, who's, who's going to be on this trail at this time. And our Adopt-A-Trail Ranger, is, which you could, I guess, look at as a paid trail crew person, uh, manages the tools, supervises those groups out on the trail for the groups that need supervision and, and haven't been out there for years. 
because trails that have been out there for the past few years can go out independently. So we, we take it on in, in that manner, which is a little different than just hiring a trail crew to go out and work on your trails. We invest it back in our community to create more stewards of trails in our community through businesses and organizations. Yeah, and I, and I do want to mention that there is some other organizations out there that certainly do things differently that that aren't represented on on this panel today. I know uh, the Santa Cruz organization that they started with, a, you know, very minimal uh, part time capacity employee, uh, and then have have expanded into multiple roles uh, as well as a, as a paid trail crew. My organization, the North Shore Mountain Bike Association, uh, I started with them as a as a paid trail builder, but it kind of it spoke to what what each of you had kind of mentioned as to why you don't just pay builders and Corey, especially what you mentioned there about you know not just giving somebody some money to to maintain the trail that they built. You need to leverage those people, and so you know what what the North Shore Mountain Bike Association has done is is they pay trail crew or, or trail day leaders, and so you don't just get paid to go out and do trail work on your own. You get paid if you can bring out a bunch of people to lead a trail day out there. And so then that way they kind of get that, that leveraging and they had uh, so much work to do on a, on a completely dilapidated trail network that it was the only way to kind of get that many trail days uh, rolling in a year. They went from having, you know, a handful of public trail days to having uh, a trail day running every single Saturday and Sunday all year long at this point, but it was always about leveraging those volunteers. And I think that's what each of you have kind of described as being a a real priority with any paid staff is that they're leveraging volunteers, they're leveraging other opportunities, that type of thing. Just another point on that, Brent. Uh, I know the the Valmont Bike Park up in Boulder is uh, owned by the parks department up there. And I believe they employ at least three full-time staff to take care of the park. And when when Denver went to build the Ruby Hill mountain bike park in the city, they chose to hire a volunteer coordinator whose job it was to leverage other volunteers to, to get the park paid for. So two slightly different approaches. And I, mm. I think you, you hit it exactly on the head is that we, we need to find out ways that we can better leverage volunteers. So what I want to finish this conversation with is, is kind of parting words of, of wisdom, I guess you could, you could describe it. Is there anything that, uh, for those of you that are staff, uh, and, and are on organizations that, that have staff, is there anything that you would, that you would suggest or anything that you would really recommend or things that might nudge an organization into, into kind of just pulling the trigger on, on making this happen? Or anything that people should be thinking about before they actually take that leap, um, you can kind of maybe point your suggestions at at Corey or the the greater listening audience as well. Um, but what anything that that you might want to say to those those organizations kind of taking that leap, Sarah? Do you mind starting us off? Yeah, I think this sounds really boring, but it's really important. Is making sure you have a really good understanding of how to employ somebody. So having someone on your board, hopefully, who like knows what a W-2 is and has an accounting firm in mind and like can kind of do all that back end stuff that is not very exciting and is not very sexy, but is absolutely crucial to you functioning and not having the IRS come after you. So I would get that in line before you even think about like writing a job description, really. I agree with that as well. When it comes to the job description, like when when I was hired, um, it was pretty heavy on, um, you know, the revenue side of it, 
increasing revenue and, and that kind of thing. But I feel like it's, it's sort of, it's evolved over time. Uh, and lucky for me, I was the first one, first executive director here in San Diego. So it's, it's good to be the first one. It's scary, but it's also good because I can kind of cast my own, my own vision with, in, you know, with the help of the board, but it's, um, it's all new and exciting. So, so that's good. I would say that it's kind of like when the a board is deciding to take this leap, there is a amount of risk involved that has to just be managed because you feel like you don't have enough money, but then you try to have that, re- you know, enough reserve that you've decided on, but it's until you take that leap, you really don't know what's going to happen. So the board has to um, come to terms with that, you know, with that risk and, and understand that the rewards um, in our case, anyway, were definitely worth it. Ernest, what about, what about you? Any suggestions? First and foremost, just making sure that your your board is in support of, of taking the leap, and that everyone is going to still uh, be in support of of you or whoever it is as the executive director. Meaning that if it's a working board, they're still going to work, and and it's it, it is going to change a little bit, but they still need to put in some time and some effort being on the board and and being the volunteer that you have been being. Second, it, it, it's about finances as well. Make sure that you have sound finances and your position can be maintained and supported for years to come. So your whole role doesn't become fundraising because there is there are many more important aspects of this this job and role. And I'm sure like most mountain biker trail organizations, their strategies are not to go out and fundraise, but to actually go out and build or maintain trails. So those those are the biggest things and conversations that came up during the time leading up to my taking on the position as ED with the VVMTA. And Corey, what I'll kind of leave you with is what would you suggest to an organization, maybe not even thinking about this, but how would you introduce this topic for, for maybe there's a board member out there that is listening to this podcast thinking like, how do I bring this conversation to my board? What's the first step? What do you, what would you kind of say to them? I think the the key thing is to talk about the vision for what you see can be accomplished in your community create the vision of this is this is the mountain biking destination that we want to be get good at painting that picture to be able to describe the future and i think that makes it easier for people to see okay if if we really want to get there we are going to have to build our capacity and there isn't really a way to do that with the with the volunteer structure great point absolutely well, everybody, I just want to thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedules to, to have this conversation. It's been great hearing from, from all of you. And, uh, and thank you so much. Thank you, Brent. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Sarah mentioned an IRS W-2 form. Obviously, each country is going to have something different. Where I live in Canada, it's known as a T-4. Something that Susie said that I wanted to highlight was, quote, I was the number one volunteer and the only employee for a time, unquote. It really speaks to how much all of us advocates put into our organizations, whether we're 100% volunteer or paid. Now, this conversation is really going to set us up well for the final episode before our summer hiatus. We'll be hearing from the mountain bikers of Santa Cruz on their mountain bike impact review and their 2025 vision, which will really feed off Corey's final words from this episode. Does your organization have a vision for the future? If not, perhaps I'll leave you with some homework for over the summer. But before we get to that, our penultimate episode will be in celebration of Father's Day and all of the mountain bike dads out there. That episode will be available on June 14th. 
Now, back in episode 43, we spoke to Patrick Lucas of the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program, his best practices and guidelines for engaging and working with Indigenous peoples on trails and outdoor recreation projects is now available. There's a link in the show notes of this episode, and now a link in the show notes of episode 43 as well. Huge thanks to all of my guests and to the North Vancouver City Library, who were kind enough to join me for the interview and take some photos of the process. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can also join the Facebook group at Advocates on the Frontlines of MTB. And you can send me an email or audio file to info at FrontlinesMTB.com. You can stream the show on Mountain Bike Radio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes along with a link to the Frontlines MTB Book Club, where a portion of any purchases made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. And thank you to Bev for making a donation this week. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And a big thanks to Ben Welneck and the team at Mountain Bike Radio for their continued support. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.